Good evening, everybody. This is Theology on Call, and my name is James Tippins. This is July the 18th, 2021, episode 125 of season four. You know, we've been going um, a, a pretty good time now with Theology on Call, and even though I've had several uh, delays and different types of times we've had off, I, I mean, we've just had a lot of good questions, a lot of uh, interesting questions, a lot of controversial questions. And so we're still around in order for us to answer the questions that you have about the Bible, about doctrine, about understanding the Christian life, life in general from a Christian worldview, or whatever it is that you may have as a Christian, a question about anything. So we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear the questions that you have. So please go to anchoringfaith.org or any of our social media platforms, our YouTube channel, Facebook channels, and happily, we're happy to answer the questions if you have them, uh, if you just submit them. And also during the live broadcast, if we have opportunity, you can submit questions through the feed. And if we get time, we can answer them there. If not, we will put them in future broadcast. But tonight we have several questions um, relating to the scripture and some other things. And I probably don't have, I've got about 14, 15 questions now. I'm probably not going to have time to answer all of these, but please don't let that um, cause you to not want to ask further questions or seek clarification. We are happy to uh, continue to talk and exercise the ability to, to engage in biblical truth and doctrine for the sake of the joy of God's people. So without further ado, let us go now to our first question. We've had a very rough year and a half uh, as a culture, as a world. Uh, the pandemic, all the fears and the fodder and everything else related to it, politics, um, good, bad, and the ugly, but a lot of people have experienced a lot of bad over the last year or so. And so I had several questions um, on top of the fact that my seven-year-old asked me this week, you know, how is it that when a baby dies, it could be a good thing? And I mentioned that this morning in part four of our Genesis 1 uh, teaching, uh, this Lord's Day, with Grace Truth Church. And, you know, it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to consider because we look at the goodness of God and things being good in a way that, um, you know, if... <laughs> that the world looks at it in a way that when we see pain and suffering, it's easy for, for us to say, this isn't good. And in a real sense, it's not good. It's not like pain is pleasant. It's not like suffering and agony and loss are, are, are something we just look forward to. But it doesn't mean that it's not for our good. And I think that that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, how can very bad things actually be considered good? Well, it's not necessarily the things in and of themselves that are good, but it's more the one who is in charge of them, the one who is in control of all of them. And so when we get down to the, you know, the meat and the potatoes, the nuts and bolts of this issue, we come to the realization that God is good. And because God is good, everything that he does is good. And because he is sovereign over all things, then all things turn out for the good. In Romans chapter 8, it teaches us this, that all things God causes, all things, the good things, the bad things, the indifferent things, all things, every second of time, every experience of life, all things to work out for good for those, for his people, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so as a believer, as a child of God, as someone who has been granted the gift of faith to rest in the sufficiency of Christ in redemption, we also learn and grow in our understanding of God's sovereignty so that Christ as God is sovereign over all things and everything that he's created and everything that he has decreed is for the purpose of his glory and to reveal his goodness. And we as his children, we benefit in that. We come to the place in life where we, we have to rest in the sufficiency of the promises of God to know that while these things are painful, while experiences are always not pleasant, they have a purpose. And that when things are evil in the world and men and humanity do things in an evil way or just the consequences of our evil nature, like the consequences of sin and the fall is sin and sickness and death and destruction. When those things become real in our lives, um, it's not that God has failed, nor is it that God has left us to ourselves, uh, but he has orchestrated and he will orchestrate these things for his greater purpose. 
And in the end of it all, we have eternal life. We have glory. We have a world that is not of this world. We have a life, a future, a hope, excuse me, that is not of this world. We have a guarantee that is outside this created order, if, if you will. And so we, we have to look at things from that perspective. And ultimately, one of the practices and the disciplines that, that causes us to see this in a way that's clearer and clearer is to focus on the gospel and to talk about the gospel and to expose the gospel more to our hearts and souls and our minds through the reading of scripture, through the hearing of the teaching of the word, and interacting and serving the saints so that we can be encouraged in the gospel. We're not trying to figure the gospel out. We're not trying to dig for deeper implications of the gospel. We are resting in the sufficiency of God's good news concerning his son. And in doing so, our lives and our hearts and our minds begin to tune to the glory of God, begin to tune to being fed and, and satisfied in the things of Christ rather than trying to fix or see how we're going to be able to, to come through the hard times of life. Because, beloved, some people have very, very hard times and some people have light hard times. But as the Apostle Paul would say in his ministry when he went through great suffering— he would call this great suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, light moment, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, he would call this light momentary affliction. And in that light momentary affliction, he says these words. He says, this light momentary affliction prepares us. Now, I want you to listen to the descriptions here. For an eternal, that means not temporary, not worldly, not of this creation, but outside forever, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So think about that for a minute. If everything that we have in this life that is good and pleasing to us and everything that is unpleasant or hard or difficult or painful is also good because of God's purposes in it, what in the world are we to look forward to? It is beyond comparison, Paul says. So in other words, there's no way to compare it. So the greatest good that we could ever imagine in this temporal life, the greatest experiences, the greatest feeling, the greatest joy, the greatest love, the greatest uh, uh, you know, um, fleshly experiences, anything, are nothing in comparison. So the goodness of the, that, that we can experience in this life, even the reality of the gospel and the granting of faith, is still nothing in comparison to the weight of glory that awaits us. So that the greatest moments, these small little fleeting moments of great joy that we feel and that we experience and that we know and we understand in Christ are still nothing in comparison to the greatness of the glory that awaits us. So that is how we are to look at these, this life that we live. That is how we're supposed to get through day after day of, of, of understanding you know, the pain and the suffering. That is how we're supposed to encourage one another in life. And that is how we're supposed to thank God in the midst of all things, the good and the bad things. This is a fantastic question, and it deserves a whole lot more time. Uh, but for today's purposes, we'll call that sufficient, and then we'll talk about it more. Feel free also to leave your comments and questions related to this, some things that God has shown and taught you in relation to your suffering. What is required for a person to be a formal member of a church? Now, there's some things that I want to talk about here in relation to the word church. The word church is a transliterated, that means it's not a translation, but it's a, uh, a new word created after the sound of another word. So transliteration is it sounds like the, another word, the word kirk. Um, which is an older word of antiquity, which means institution. So the word church in our vernacular means institution, but the word church is not found in the New Testament scripture. Now we use that as a translated a translated word for the term or for the, uh, the word ecclesia and all of its variants. And that word means assembly, and it was used for any assembly, any assembly of persons. It's not a special word that's relegated to just spiritual things, Christianity. Uh, it's, if it's a sporting event, it was an assembly. If it was a, 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 a you know a charitable event, it was an assembly. If it was a family gathering, it was an assembly. If it was a um, you know a civic a civic place for court or trials or you know some type of governing assembly, it was called an assembly, ecclesia. But when we find it as an as a, a noun, and when it is illustrated in the New Testament as the assembly of the believers, 
And then we see the New Testament. That, that is what we mean when we say church. So it's a family. It's a spiritual family, a spiritual gathering of people who, on the surface, agree and are gathering for the purpose of saying they believe and have been granted faith by the, by the Spirit to believe in the finished work of Christ for their redemption. They understand their righteousness is imputed to them, that it is alien. It is Christ's righteousness on our account. This is the, you know, the, the foundation of the gospel message and that the scriptures would teach us all that we are the elect of God and therefore have been granted eyes to see the truth of the gospel um, and, and so on and so forth. And then the New Testament apostles, the, the, the messengers of Christ, they write letters known as epistles. <laughs> it's a transliteration word for letter. They write letters that are uh, that instruct the New Testament gathering, the New Testament church, um, on how they should operate, on how they should be governed, on how they should learn and grow, and how they should minister, how they should deal with reconciliation, how they should deal with conflict, how, should, how they should deal with correction and or love, which is also known as discipline. Um, loving correction is discipline. Um, and everything else. Everything that's needed for life and godliness is granted to us by the divine power of God, and the divine power of God is revealed to us through the written pages of the apostles, and the apostles' writing has been preserved by God throughout antiquity for our good and for our joy and for our instruction and our training and everything else, Second Timothy 3, um, so that the Word of God is sufficient for the elders and the man of God that oversee the joy and the foundational function of the body together, the assembly or the church, uh, is profitable and successful in all of his ways in oversight and instruction, etc. So that's what a church really is. A church is not something you join institutionally. A church is a people that you covenant with intimately. I'm going to say that again. A church is not a thing that you join institutionally. The church, according to the New Testament that you know, instruction of the church is a people whom you covenant with intimately. Join institutionally, covenant intimately. It's two different things. So when we think about formal inclusion, so to be a member means that you are accepted and included. So that the family goes, we'll accept you. We 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 will include you in our care. We will include you because you have made a promise, and the rest of the body has the rest of the family has made a promise. Just like marriage, which is temporary, marriage will cease. The assembly of the saints will never cease. So the assembly of the saints is a is the ultimate outcome of the microscopic, tiny, teensy shadow of marriage. So you think about the intimacy of marriage and all of its purposes behind the gospel, according to Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5 and others, uh, and Genesis 1. Um, and then you look at the assembly of the saints as instructed in the New Testament. The parallel is not just... I mean, it's, it, it is by definition uncanny because the ultimate end is the eternal intimacy of the saints with Jesus Christ, which the marriage looks to so that the bride and the groom are not separated or ripped apart and the bride is not ripped apart into pieces either. They are at intimacy with, intimacy with one another because we are, at intim- we are within intimacy with Jesus Christ himself. So that means to be include, included. It is a formal thing. It's not something that's just flippantly. Oh, yeah, come on, let's be buddies. Let's go fishing together. No, um, because there is a testing period. There's a testing period to test to see if others are in the faith and willing to be subject to the rule of God for the New Testament church, which are the apostles. The apostles are the rulers of the New Testament church in instruction which ultimately they speak for Christ. So Christ is the head of the church. You see, that's how the apostles teach it. Um, And we have a a serious void in the world today of pastors who don't understand this. So how are you shepherding and you don't understand what the assembly is and what it's supposed to be? Um, So we have philosophical things and humanistic things and cultural things and historical things that have taken precedent over the clear teaching of Scripture. And the Scripture shows that a... Formal inclusion in covenant intimacy is something that the church should not take lightly and that the body of Christ should not take lightly and that the individual believer should not take lightly. But once that has been made, it is a promise. And it just you can't just say, well, change my mind. It's not going the way I want it. I don't like it. I, you can't do that and say you insisted. That's the person who says, yeah, I know I said I was going to marry you till death to his part, but things aren't going the way I thought they would, and I'm done with you. 
it's just ridiculously sinful. It's a, it's a wicked ideology. Uh, and then some people say, well, it wasn't really a church. Listen, if there are believers there and the elders preach the gospel, the true gospel, no matter what else comes into that, into that assembly, it is the true body of Christ. So do not spurn the Son of God by spitting in the face of Christ for, by, by, by shunning those whom he has purchased with his own blood because of an ideology that is unbiblical or extra-biblical. So what is required for a person to be a formal member of the church? The person here, with all that said, here's the simple answer. The person must confess the gospel clearly, and they must say that they believe it. And after that, they must be in covenant relationship with the rest of the believers. Then they must be in covenant relationship with the Scripture according to the teaching of the apostles, relating to how they're not the important one. The body is the important one. The whole assembly is the important one. No individual person in the assembly is more important than the assembly itself. That's the mind of Christ, okay? That's why we grow the way we do in intimacy. When we put ourselves first, our feelings first, our ideas first, our fears first, we are, we are sinful and that cannot be. It has to be corrected. That's why elders, plurally, are able to say, okay, this is causing issues. Let's correct these things. Let's work patiently through these things. Let's seek reconciliation in these things. But if someone is not willing to be part of the intimate promise that they made in a marriage, intimate promise, what does Paul say? If the unbeliever leaves, let them go. You're free. You are free. You're free. If we're not brothers in Christ, there is no intimacy. And in that, so when we, find, when we find someone to be a formal, intimate member of the assembly, if they don't profess the gospel, then they're not intimately in the assembly. But what do you say? Well, if they profess the gospel, then they change their mind. We lovingly correct it. That's called discipline. And if that discipline is unfruitful, then we excommunicate. We formally shun until that person comes back of their own accord by conviction of Christ to seek restoration to the intimate covenant with the body of Christ. See, the love doesn't come back and get its own way. If you do this, then there's no conditional expressions of reconciliation by a believer who is being led by the Spirit. That's not how it works. So for a person to become a formal member of the church, they confess the true gospel. They make covenant intimacy a paramount. They covenant in the context of public that's what it means, a covenant. It's intimate. Everybody knows. This person agrees that the Bible is authoritative, and they're willing to submit to the loving correction and the intimacy and to serve in ministry of the local assembly. And that doesn't mean serving in a, a program now or doing I'm talking about serving the body as the need comes up, not the need that fits our profile, the needs that arise. That's what's required to be a formal member of the church. And when anything stands in the way of that and excommunication takes place, that person is a formally shunned until that person comes back to the realization by the Spirit of God that they want to now be included. Uh, but unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, um, and some believers refuse that type of reality. They refuse it, uh, so they don't recognize that there's any type of there's there any type of, you know, agreement with the Bible on what it means to be a member of the local family of Christ? So that's, in a nutshell, a lot of you may have more questions now than you do answers, but that's, uh, that's, that's a thoroughly biblical answer with the whole New Testament in view there. So if you have things or if you think I've misspoken, feel free to push back on that. I've heard you say recently that the pulpit is for correction and instruction. Yeah, I said that I said that three weeks ago. I disagree. I think pastors should only commentate on the text and leave it to the Lord. Can you defend your position? I don't have to defend that position. Uh, number one, um, elders don't have to defend their positions based on how they see you know, the purposes of God explained in Scripture and the commands of Christ in that context. Uh, but... I'll explain my position. So there's a difference, and I left the defend there so that you can see the tone of it. And I know that's not what you meant. Um, I'm not. I'm not making judgment, but I want to make that clear for the rest of our audience because you know elders don't have to defend themselves. No Christian has to defend their positions. We can explain our positions, and love believes all things. 
So, um, yes, the pulpit is for correction. The pulpit is for discipline. The pulpit is for instruction. The pulpit is for encouragement. The pulpit is for instruction of righteousness. The pulpit is for administration. The pulpit is for the use of the Word of God as it was written so that the people of God can live in a manner worthy of the calling, so that they can live in intimacy, that God is only glorified when they adhere to the teaching and to the obedience uh, and to the commands that they are to obey in the New Testament relating to their intimacy with Christ and their intimacy with one another. So um, to, you know, to express or defend this position, the New Testament letters. I can't preach the New Testament letters if I don't use it for correction because the New Testament letters were written for correction. The, the New Testament letters were written for instruction. Um, preaching is not about a commentary on the same subject every week. Because the Bible isn't written like that. Yes, the subject of the Bible is the redemption of God's elect people in Christ Jesus, but there are many things in the Bible that are taught at length. There are many things in the Bible that are taught in the context of behavior. Um, uh, and you can't go through the book of Ephesians and Galatians and not deal with behavior. You can't go through the book of James and First and Second, Third John and not deal with behavior. These are not theological books. These are behavior books. These are practical instructions given to the church. These are the imperatives. These are the things that must take place for the church to give glory to Christ, the Romans 12, 1 and 2 type thing. So that's, that's what the pulpit's for. And I've said this, I've said this for many, many years, y'all, uh, to many people, but um, many people love to hear good sermonizing, doctrinal things and commentary, but they don't want to be shepherded. They don't want to hear the therefores of Scripture. And beloved, anybody who dismisses the therefores of Scripture is literally dismissing Christ himself because he has commanded the apostles to teach these things. So we are going to receive the full counsel of the Word of God, which even means in the manner in which we listen, learn, and apply the Word of God to our lives. But, you know, you got to be careful because you don't want to hear somebody say, well, you need to do what the Bible says or you're going to go to hell. Or if you don't do what the Bible says, you're probably not a believer. If you believe in the gospel, you're a believer, period. God has granted you that faith to rest. No matter how easily or more difficult or, 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 or with what level of difficulty you deal with trying to explain it, if God has given you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for his people, then you have, according to your profession, you have been saved. You've been born again. You have been uh, you have been regenerated. You you have been, you know, you, you are a child of God because of what Christ has done. That's your hope. But when we start to look and point to the other areas of doing and being and speaking, we are becoming legalistic, and every human being is that way. We can become legalist in doctrinal issues. We can become legalist in behavior issues. We can become a legalist in the context of what our purity issues. We can become, you know, what is that? Somebody asked a question that I, I don't think I'm going to have time to. What does that mean? To what's the lust of the flesh? What is the lust of the eyes and the flesh? Um, and, you know, it, we can get real nitpicky on that. Some people say, well, you shouldn't have a television. You shouldn't have a computer. You shouldn't have this. These are not things that we deal with. Don't touch. Don't eat. Don't taste. Um, but at the same time, we don't use freedom from the law and freedom uh, from condemnation as a way to satisfy the flesh. James says it best that anything that's not done in faith is sin. Um, so we, we put all this together, and the shepherds of the church carefully and tenderly orchestrate this teaching and put it in a place where the church can can digest it. The more mature believers may get it and see it easier and be able to be more free and have freedom uh, and then try to help instruct others because we're supposed to, the younger men of the church are supposed to be quiet and listen to the older men of the church. And the younger women of the church are supposed to be quiet and listen to the younger men of the, uh, the younger women of the church, the older women of the church and, and, and vice versa uh, or, or as it goes down. So everybody has that responsibility, but we're always looking upward to the seasoned elders of our life, whether they're in the office of elder or not, man or woman, older than us in the faith, we're to be subject to their teaching instruction in these matters, in these matters. Um, and so that is, back to the original question, that is why we teach the way we do. That is what exposition is. That is what expository preaching does, is it takes the letter in its fullness and it applies not only the theological things, but it, it, it answers the question, now what, so what? What difference does it make? This is the difference that it makes. Because every New Testament letter teaches some things and then says, this is why I'm teaching this, because this is what I want from you. And to say that we're not subject to those things is to truly tell God he's a liar. Um, and that is a serious issue. We don't want to tell God he's a liar. So a anyway, very, very good question. Very good question.
All right, next question is, why did John the Baptist die? Well, we see that in Mark chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 14, uh, where John the Baptist <clears throat> is killed. And a lot of folks are like, well, why did he Why did he have to die? Let's see if I can get this up here right here. Uh, oh, wrong one. <laughs> you can't read that, I'm sure. Uh, here we go. So, I can take my face off here. All right. In this, uh, the scripture teaches about John the Baptist and teaches about what he, um, you know, what he uh, was. Uh, let me see. I might be in the wrong text. Just a minute. Anyway, John the Baptist. Oh, let me go to John. Why am I here? Let me go to John, uh, and then that way we can uh, we can just go there. John the Baptist. Let me go back to this. John the Baptist, of course, we know, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth's son, uh, cousin to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And John the Baptist is the pre-forerunner. He is the one in the spirit of Elijah. So it's not Elijah reincarnated. This is not Elijah the prophet uh, coming back to earth. Um, in other words, in the same manner in which Elijah preached, so now John the Baptist has preached. And in the day of Elijah, we saw uh, Queen Jezebel hated him and had him killed. Why? Because he preached the truth of God. He preached the righteousness of God. He preached the justice and the wrath and the judgment of God. And she didn't want to be told what to do. Human problem, isn't it? It's a human nature problem. And so in the function and the feature of a prophet, uh, she had him put to death. Well, the same thing is true of John the Baptist. He came as a forerunner to Christ. In John chapter 1, it says that you know he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Here we go. I can get it now. He came to bear witness about the light. <clears throat> and um, there was a man, verse 6, his name was John. He came to witness, as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. The true light, which is Jesus Christ, we see that. And the testimony of John, verse 19, it says that, you know, they came, they asked him who he is. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not Messiah. I'm not the Christ. And they said, are you Elijah? No, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So they said to him, then who are you? We need to answer those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And this is what he says. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So now... We see the Pharisees are thinking, well, now if you're baptizing you're, and you're neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, uh, why are you doing this? He says, I baptize with water, but the one who stands among you, who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I cannot, I'm not worthy to loosen. These things took place in Bethany where John was baptizing. He saw Jesus. He says, the Lamb of God, look, he takes away, or who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after he after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, and at the baptism of Jesus, we see the we see, you know, the Trinitarian reality of God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son together, and the Spirit in presence and the Father speaking at the baptism of John. I got my face up there twice. You definitely don't need two of me. Um so John the Baptist then uh, had an issue with Herod. Herod was the puppet king of the Hellenizers, basically, you know, Greekized Jews, and in a in a way of trying to keep some type of formality with Israel as their own sovereign nation, the Roman people put Herod in place as a puppet king. And Herod's new wife, which was also his cousin, I think, uh, or his niece. <laughs> Um, John the Baptist had a problem with that because it was sinful, and he kept calling Herod out. But Herod was enamored by John and by John's teaching. And so, long story short, um, and of course the question is, you know, why did why did John the Baptist die? Why did he have to die? And the long story short is this: is that Herod's wife tricked him, said, "You give me anything I want, etc., etc., etc." And then he says, absolutely, I'm a man of my word, whatever, in front of everyone. And she says, I want John the Baptist's head on this platter. Okay. So he did. He chopped his head off. Now, a lot of folks are like, why did that have to happen? Well, first of all, it happened because God is sovereign over John the Baptist. John the Baptist's purpose 
was to be the forerunner pointing to Messiah, and his job was over. Secondly, John even knew this. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. See, John's disciples, the people who followed John's teaching, which was about Jesus, uh, were getting upset, as we see in John's narrative and John the evangelist's narrative, the apostle's narrative of his gospel, where they said, you know, look, our people are going over to John. And he said, the bridegroom gets the bride. You know, we're just the messenger. We're just the herald or we're just the preacher. So John had to die because it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord for him to skip the rest of this and to get straight to the glory. And, you know, it's, it's the purpose of God. Not that John would have taken away from, from Christ. I mean, Jesus is not in competition with anybody. But for the pure sake of his work being finished, there's a sense in which the Scripture teaches that, you know, John, John was to die. It was the will of the Lord for him to die. And so that's why he died. And um, I, I think it goes back to our first question. You know, why, how is it that we can look at everything? How can every bad thing be considered good? Well, the death of John the Baptist was good. And the death of Jesus was good, even though they were two very bad things. They were bad in and of themselves, and the fact that they were murder, both of them. But, you know, John was worthy of death because John was a sinful man. Jesus was not worthy of death. And so they murdered him. But why? Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was through the death of Christ that life comes. It was through the death of Christ that wrath is satisfied. It's through the death of Christ that, you know, that, 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 that justification is, is, is true, and God is righteous in His forgiving of sinners. His elect people sin because Christ paid for their sin, and then Christ's righteousness is credited to their account. So that's, you know, and there's a lot I could say there. I could, I could go back into a lot of different things and, and just specifically teach just, in, just out of my own passion the life of John the Baptist. But, um, and if you want to see, you know, in Matthew's gospel or in Luke's gospel, you know, you can see the birth of John the Baptist. What is the peace of Christ or the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? Well, beloved, there are a lot of, that. that's found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And in John 14, 27, Jesus says, my peace I live with you. Uh, I leave with you, not I live with you. Uh, my peace I leave with you. And when, let's look here. And Philippians, let's go here to Philippians. In Philippians, it says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. He says, I entreat Euodia and Synthica to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. They were having some problems. He said, you know, let them, let them, uh, let them have agreement. Encourage them, shepherd them into agreement. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything. All right? About anything. Do not be anxious. But instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, that means praying for other people, praying for other things, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts. Will guard your hearts. I don't know what has just happened here. Oh, it's trying to give me a note. Um, that's not what I need, is it? Nope. Here we go. There. It will guard your hearts. Then finally, look at this. And your minds in Jesus Christ. Brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, Put your minds on this. Put your minds on this. This this is what God is teaching us as his children to do. Practice what you see me do, Paul says, and think about things that are lovely and pleasant. But what do we do in our humanity? We're always at odds because we're always focusing on the negative or the negation the opposite of what is good and lovely. We're all, we'd rather fuss and talk about the problems rather than rejoice in Christ. And so the peace of God that surpasses all understanding is literally focusing on the gospel of Christ, focusing on that which is counterintuitive to our flesh, which is excellence, which is glory, which is perfection, 
and all these things and focusing then instead on, you know, the bad stuff or the stress or the pain or the anxiety. So when we think about it and we get down to the nitty gritty, we think, oh, we can solve our problems emotionally, psychologically, physically, financially, relationally. We can work together to come to these things. We can sit down and make all this work out. We can, we can come to the table of, 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 you know, of negotiations and compromise and come to a place of understanding, you know, what, to, what needs to be done in the world and get world peace. The scripture says world peace is a, is a sham. It's, it's fake news. It's not going to happen. There's no such thing as world peace. There's no such thing as world peace. What there is is the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ gives us and leaves with us, not the world's ways, but his ways. Christ made peace with God the Father for us by dying. Does that sound reasonable, logical, r- rational? No, it doesn't sound rational. Can't we just come to some peace terms? Can't we just make a treaty? There's no treaty in the context of, of, of holiness. There's no treaty in the context of righteousness. There's a covenant that God made with himself before the world began eternally, and he put that covenant into play through the death of Jesus in time because that's why he created the world, to redeem his people. So the peace that surpasses all understanding means it's beyond what the mind can comprehend so that there is a supernatural and divine work of God to give us rest, to know, you know, all is at peace. We are at peace. There is nothing else left for us but peace. So that is, that is, that is what it means, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And there's so much more. I mean, we could go through and talk about all the, the different roles in which the Scripture teaches us about peace. Uh, we can talk about the different ways in which you know Christ in, in, in John 14 and in John 17, how he prays, uh, and, and the power of God to, to really resolve in our hearts and minds. Um, to, to truly be at peace and to be in our hearts and minds at one with Christ and his gospel. So very, very good question. Next question. How is the scripture our sole source of revelation? And how is it the knowledge of the truth? In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, I'm going to go over here to try to pull that up this time without tearing up the computer screen here. Uh, and I'm going to 1 Peter for some reason. Second Peter 1, <clears throat> I just actually quoted this. Here we go. Let's look at it for a second. It says, His divine power has granted us everything, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Now, all right, let's stop right there. Where are the promises found? Where are the promises found? The promises are found in the very writing of Scripture. So his divine power through the writing of Scripture has granted us all things needed for life and godliness. This isn't some ethereal type stuff floating around the atmosphere that we just have to find or tap into. This is not some kind of spiritual you know, in, engagement that we have to come to the right term or the right place of, you know, of purity, and then all of a sudden we connect with God. God connects with us by grace. He bends down and condescends to us because of his love for his people. And in doing this, he became a human being to pay for the sins of his people, to live as a human being under the law, yet he sinned not. Therefore, he did not deserve the death, but that death then was payment for the sins of the people that for whom he died. And this is found in the scripture through which the Spirit of God, through the natural means of writing and reading and hearing the supernatural work of God establishes in the hearts of his people faith. And so these great promises are found in the Bible so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So you have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason. And then this is not really what I want to get here, but now we get this, what we have, we have doctrine, we have doctrinal teaching, we uh, that's redundant. Doc, we have teaching in the scripture from the apostle uh, Peter, and then we all of a sudden see that it is found in the scripture, and one thing leads to another, and we realize that everything that God has equipped us with is found in scripture. Everything that God has promised us is found in scripture. Everything that God has uh, revealed to us is found in scripture, and so now the instructions of the therefores because of this now, for this very reason, now we get some instruction, which is found in Scripture, and I'm getting to the answer to the question, I promise. Um, so here we go. Make every effort to supplement your faith. 
That doesn't mean that your faith needs strengthening or needs supplement in order for its efficacy, but it's with your faith. You see, you believe, you believe because God has given you the gift of faith. And he's given you the gift of faith. He's also going to give you the gift of understanding as we grow in our knowledge of grace. He's going to give you clarity. He's going to give you precision. He's going to give you intimacy. He's going to give you love. He's going to give you maturity. He's going to give you all sorts of things as we grow together. And our flesh is still going to fight. Our mind is still going to fight. And that's why we gauge and judge everything by the gospel alone, no other way, so that we can be in line with God's revelation of how we are to make these judgments and how we are to uh, understand, you know, that the Bible alone is sufficient for our understanding, period. So all of this, brother, affection with love, and if we do these things, look at verse 8. These qualities of yours are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful um, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because you can have the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you can understand God can give you faith to know His redemptive work, but it's fruitless if it's not being put to work, this is what James is talking about, which we'll, we'll be talking about not this wind week, but next wind week, I'll pick back up in James. Um, so, you know, we, we want to be effective. We want to be fruitful. And if we lack these qualities, verse 9, we're so nearsighted that we're almost blind because it's almost like we've forgotten that we were cleansed by the grace of God through Christ Jesus of our former sins. So what does James say? He said, faith without works is dead. He said, man, what are you doing? You need to be doing something. You look in the Bible and then you forget what it says. It's like looking in the mirror and forgetting what you look like. Have you ever looked in a mirror and not known who you were? No, you know who you are. That's the absurdity of that illustration. So he says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fear, never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided you an entrance to the eternal kingdom of heaven, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend, look at verse 12. I could have used this as a question about why, you know, or why, why I say, and why the scripture, why God says that shepherds of the church, of the intimate body, are supposed to use the Bible for instruction. Because he says right there, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. So if Peter reminds the Jewish believers of his day of the qualities, and the Bible is sufficient for the teaching of the Scripture, as it says to 2 Timothy 3, by Paul, for the elder of the Gentile church, then surely Peter's writing to the Jewish church is also going to be sufficient for the teaching of the Gentile church today as it was 2,000 years ago. So we are to be reminded of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I'm in my body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. Now, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. All right, now think about this for a second. All right, here, here we are in the midst of all this. And the question, of course, on the table is, is, is this. The question on the table is this. How is the scripture the sole source of revelation and knowledge of the truth? So the reason I'm going here and I went here is to get to verse 16. Because verse 16, if you look at this text, says something doesn't it? It says four. Look at that. So here's the gospel at play, and now all these instructions coming from the Word of God being called the divine power of God, like the gospel is the power of God, where the gospel is written in the Bible, and the Bible and everything else that's written in it for the instruction of the saints is sufficient for our joy, for our growth, for our intimacy, for everything that God has desires for us. And now Peter is reminding his readers Listen, remember, what I'm writing to you now is just as authoritative and just as effective by the power of God as what the prophets wrote and said that you're very well familiar with. We didn't follow these myths. We made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice. Look at that. Very voice, the one that I just read about John the Baptist. Um, and we follow him on this. And we have verse 19, the point I'm getting to, the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing first this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own personal or private interpretation, but we have received it from the Lord. So what we write is as authoritative as anything that's ever been written by Moses or any other prophet that's ever written anything down. No prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then he gets into the reality, into the ditch of the fact that there are going to be um, false prophets. So 
That's why the Scripture is the sole source of revelation and knowledge of the truth. And that's why the, soul script, the Scripture is the sole source of the work of God for His people. So we need to pay close attention to that. We need to pay close attention to that. Um, next question. What is a reprobate and how can we tell? All right. I've had this question in the queue for about four weeks, about a month. As a matter of fact, there were several questions about reprobation. And uh, I've had this conversation with a couple of brothers. I've had this conversation with a couple of people around town and some of you online. You know, you know we've been talking about this. Um, and I thought, well, let me, let me put all these together and just discuss very plainly what reprobation is. So in Romans chapter 9, let's see if I can pull that up for us. In Romans chapter 9, everybody goes, oh, Romans 9, here we go, Romans 9. But Romans 9 um, talks about the failure of God. It, uh, you know, Paul, Paul undergirds the, or, or excuse me, answers the accusation that God is not just. I'm sorry, I keep messing this up. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not the way it is. He says, the word of God has not failed. And, on down verse, uh, oh goodness, I'm going to have to go all the way down to verse 19. Uh, so there's no injustice on God's part. I'll have mercy right here. Verse 14, 15, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, as God has said to Moses, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend then on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says, for this very purpose, I've raised you up. Now think about this for a second. God raised Pharaoh up and gave him prominence, power, wealth, prestige. Pharaoh lived an incredibly human-wise, an amazing life. But he did, God did this so that he could destroy him. For this very purpose, so that I might show my power on you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then it had, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. And the question in verse 19 says this, then who's going to say, um, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In verse 20, and I'm going to talk about this actual text next week in Genesis on the Lord's Day. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and the other for dishonorable use? And that's, you know, what if God, verse 22 is the key. This is where I wanted to get desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience. We don't mistake the patience of God with loving kindness. We just take it for what it says in the Bible, patience. What if God has endured in order to show his wrath and make his power known with much patience vessels of wrath who have been created for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So now we see that there is this teaching of the Scripture that God has prepared a people for destruction and has prepared a people for glory, for salvation. Uh, we can go to Jeremiah 6, and we can see stuff like that where God has resisted others and hated others, and uh, Proverbs 16 and some other places. But ultimately... The answer to this question is very simple, and it is this. We do not know who the reprobate are, and we cannot tell in present life. The Scripture does not give us that knowledge. The Scripture is never, is never going to reveal to us that which belongs to God. God alone knows the heart of man, and just because someone is an unbeliever doesn't make them reprobate. So to say that we can know is of the devil, okay? And I know I say that very hardly, uh, in a hard way, but I have to because if I don't say it that harshly, people are going to assume that maybe there's a possibility. Folks, there's no possibility for any human being on this side of eternity to know who reprobate people are. Well, my brother John, he lived a life and never did this, and I never heard him confess Christ. Well, that's not, you're still not God. You don't know what God has done in the hearts and the lives of his elect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, could we say, well, we can say we've never known a profession. We can say it seemed as though this person died in unbelief. And if that's true, then they were reprobate. But we cannot say we know who the reprobate are living among us today. Um, and that's something that, that, that we're not called to do. There's no warrant in Scripture, no prescription, no command, no instruction whatsoever to be worried about who are reprobate and who are not. Uh, as a matter of fact, there are, there's, 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 
there's a nature of God and his essence, um, uh, the nature of God and his essence, his, his, his qualities. He doesn't even give us anything of how he relates in any way to the reprobate except in judgment. Um, and so the fact that he will produce wrath forever in whatever form he has determined in judgment is what we know, and we know that he will not give them faith. He will not give them faith. He will not, he will not grant them repentance, which is faith. Uh, granting repentance is faith. So to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, so that's, uh, that's a difficult one. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, people like to try to pick in, dig beneath the surface and pick on uh, the doctrine a little bit deeper and go, well, how about this? And it's a lot of hypotheticals. And for those of you who know me, you know I can't stand hypotheticals because they always lead us into places that the Bible does not clearly teach. And then we get bogged down in the, in the peripherals and the philosophy and the rational inference rather than the clear teaching. Let's get the clear teaching of Scripture down. Everything else will start making sense. I think we need to spend more time in that. Um, speculation, assumption, all those things, just they're, they're from the flesh. They're not from the Spirit of God. God does not give assumption and speculation and fear and paranoia and, and suspicion to His people. That is the flesh being fed by the temptation of the enemy, and it is still in the sovereignty of God. So we as the church together... And for those of you who want to know what the church is, go back to my first question, second question, uh, second question tonight. Um, we know that, <laughs> you know, we are together for the purposes of the Lord growing us and maturing us, and we all have an integral part to play, and none of us are more important than the other. So, now, I've got several more questions, but unfortunately, with the time I have left, I want to try to keep this below an hour each time for uh, some, some administrative reasons and some, for some technical and logistical reasons. But the, I've got five or six more questions, and I'll just push them off the next week. Those of you who have been commenting, I have not had a chance to even look at the comments. Please continue to send messages and post them there. I will look at them tonight or tomorrow, and we'll respond accordingly. If you have a question that's more of a sensitive nature or that you need prayer about some things, just let us know through message or through private message or through email. You can go to anchorandfaith.org and send inform, uh, send us a message there. And we just are so glad that you spend your Sunday nights with us, and I look forward to seeing you guys uh, this Lord's Day next week. And then also the week after that, we'll see you on midweek. But until then, Lord bless. I love each and every one of you. Bye-bye.